take place through this mysterious word preserved for us, written on paper, yet alive and active, searching even now, beginning to find its way as the word was quoted into our hearts, into the realities of our lives, into who we are. So, Lord, thank you for this moment. Lord, we desperately need your ministry. Holy Spirit, you are our only hope as we gaze into this word. And thank you for the promise that you are here to lead us into the truth. Uh, that's, not, that's not my job. That's not anybody here's job. That is your job. We depend on you. We look to you this morning. Open us to your word as you open your word to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 1, Peter began, as he said last week, where any study of the Word of God must begin. It must begin with God. This is a book about God. Right? Is that as deep as it gets right there? This is a book about God. And so the book begins with God. And this morning, I'm going to push past the verses where Peter began. Gail quoted for us the first five verses, but I'm really going to look at the first 18 verses all as a unit together. So let's start reading after what Gail quoted to us in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now this is a it's a bit of an, an introduction to the Gospel of John. These 18 verses are put together by John to introduce us to where he's going with this study. Remember, as we read this Gospel, this is not just some guy reporting history. This is, this is not uh, David Brinkley reporting. He was on site, he watched Jesus do some things, and he wrote them down. John is led by the Holy Spirit as a preacher. He is preaching a message. He is looking at all the content that there is of Jesus' life and being led by the Spirit to bring out particular nuances to convince us in particular areas. So everything about Jesus is not in the Gospel of John. 
certain angles of what Jesus did are presented a little bit differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's all done intentionally by God to get us to see Jesus Christ through a different lens. Now, let me just give you just an overall flow. This passage flows through, I think, three major concepts, and it really would capture major elements that this book is going to traffic in. One, we're introduced to life's main character, God. God is the main character of our existence, as Peter explained who he was and how this verse uniquely reveals him in the first five verses and on. Secondly, we're introduced to the mission of Christ. This, this entire gospel is about the mission of Jesus Christ. Why did he come? Well, we're going to get a glimpse of that and we're going to see it get unfolded throughout the rest of the gospel. And third, we're introduced to the greatest crime in human history. We get an introduction to that, but the rest of this book is going to take it apart and show it to us. It's going to show it. It's going to show the rumblings of it leading up, and it's going to show it along the way as it's in the human heart. This is the greatest crime in human history, greater than Joseph Stalin, greater than Adolf Hitler, greater than Charles Manson, any of the famous ones. This is the greatest crime in human history. Well, this is a bit of a table of contents if you will. Uh, I think I, I try to stay away from being guilty of judging a book by its cover. You know, you're told not to do that. I always judge books by their table of contents, though. I always open the cover, and whether or not I'm going to read much of that book at all has everything to do with how they did putting the table of contents together. It could be a great book. If they didn't do a good job with the table of contents, they don't get my business. So I'm always reading, okay, where are you going with this? What's the flow of thought here? What are the major headings? What's the major sections? And what are the subtitles saying before I commit to reading this thing? Well, that's what John does here. He kind of lets us in on the table of contents. And, and like any good book, I think we should be aware. I, I notice this with my kids. Some of my kids' textbooks are laid out a certain way that when they begin to read a new story, in the beginning, there are vocabulary words. These are words that you might not know what they mean. And if you don't look them up and get a good working knowledge of them, when you read the rest of the story, you're not going to get what the thing is about. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, don't be guilty of doing this. This is, this is laziness on our part, whether you're reading literature or whether you're reading the Bible. There's a lot of words that we just don't know what they mean. But we need to know what they mean. Take the time to look them up and find out what they mean. Then when you actually read what they are, where they are inserted in the story, the story will come to life in fresher and greater ways. Well, I put a little list of new vocabulary words. These are not all new to some, but, but they have significant newness in John's setting here. We're going to look a little bit this morning at some of these. The beginning. Now listen, every one of these needs a, a very strong working definition in our hearts. You should be able to explain theologically what these things mean and why they're significant words. As John's going to develop them quite a bit. The beginning, God. Don't, don't assume for a moment in our culture that God is clearly defined. We live in a culture that God is as, as you believe him to be. Now, you get to be the one who decides who God is. Everything from 12-step programs to the multicultural uh, dimensions of our country. Where everybody's encouraged to have their own beliefs and it's okay. I mean, that's great for democracy, it's great for government, it's not great for thinking. Every view of God is not valid. Contradictory views of God can't stand side by side. We're going to become a, a people who are idiots if we think that way. So we do need to have a concept of God. The Word. 
that God is going to be presented as a word. This, words are what we use to communicate. Well, the word is God's communication to us. And that gets unfolded throughout this book. Words like life and light are introduced. Darkness is mentioned here. Just a question for you. In our positive spin world, do you have a healthy definition of darkness in the world that you live in? Are there some things in this world that you would say are dark? You know, that word darkness, it carries with it. It carries with it tones of, of evil, sinister, and plotting, things to be afraid of. Do you look out into this world and do you see darkness? Are you able to point it out? Do you look into your own heart and see darkness? See, I ask this question because I'm not sure in the world that we live in today, that's, that's where people like to go. They'd like for everything to be, come on, man, just be positive. We want to we be encouraged. We want something positive. So we just want to say positive things about everything. There are things in this world that are dark. There are things inside your heart that are dark. You need a category. You need a good biblical definition for that. A witness. We're going to learn a little bit about John the Baptist in the future here. But John the Baptist, who the Bible says, is the greatest man born to a woman besides Jesus Christ. He's the greatest man born to a woman. Well, what's the resume of the greatest man born to a woman? What, what did the greatest man who ever lived on earth do? He was a witness of Jesus Christ. That's his claim to fame. That's a pretty great thing to be doing, apparently. The world, world, this word world gets used several times throughout John. How many of you guys would, would say the Bible is pro-segregationist? The Bible is for segregation. See, now I realize you're, you're wrestling with that because segregation is like a curse word. I might have all just cursed just now. You said, you said that segregation and you said it like it was good. No, man, segregation is wrong. It's always wrong. Where we come from, segregation has racial overtones to it. Where the Bible comes from, there is segregation. You realize the Bible does not speak about everybody on planet Earth the same way. It puts some people in a very poor light. And it puts some people in a very gracious light. Now, I need to know that when I come to the Bible, because when the Bible uses the term world, it uses it in a couple of ways. It may just be the cosmos as it exists, but it may also be that group of people who are a certain way. They're from the other side of the tracks, if you know what I mean, spiritually. Well, the Bible says that, and we can't be upset about that. Believe. What does it mean to believe? We get introduced to belief in this book. Children of God. And we'll get to this at the end, but that's a real sloppy definition right there. Who are the children of God? Well, if you're in this country, well, everybody's a child of God, right? Well, let's find out today. Born of God. Glory. There's a good religious word. What on earth does that mean? Grace and truth. All these terms come into us right here in the beginning, in these first 18 verses. And they're going to get unpacked throughout the rest of the Gospel of John. But let me start with just these three main sections that are here. We're introduced first to life's main character, and Peter really did the lion's share of work on here. I just want to capture something else that was in this section that I think is critical to us. Um, as Peter mentioned last week, it's absolutely essential that we have an accurate definition for who God is. There can't be anything more important. 
And don't assume that that's true for everybody. You've got different religions today who all say we all worship the same God. Well, that's a person who's never done his homework. If you're standing today in our multicultural world and you're saying the, uh, the people of Islam worship God and the people of Christianity worship God, we just need to all, I mean, we're all worshiping the same God after all. Then either you don't know who the God of Christianity is or you don't know who the God of, of, of Islam is because they are not the same. Even though they may bear the name God. So the defining of God is very important. But notice this. John begins with the statement, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning. And I think this in the beginning statement is more than just a calendar reference. I don't think he's just trying to go back to, let's see where this all began. Well, let's see, it was a, it was a dark night, 1924. That, I don't think this is the reference point. I think in the beginning for John is, is an orienting statement. It is a statement of origins. It is a statement that takes us back to design. In the beginning, God, because immediately he moves into creation. And he does that in Genesis is the same way. In the beginning, God. So, in other words, before there were any humans anywhere who had any ideas about anything, before there was any human intention, any human dreams, before any human inventions, before any human relationships, before anything that was human, there was God creating humanity. Before there was Walmart and wealth and boyfriends and grades and six-figure incomes, before any of that stuff, there was already God and he was designing something for man. That's, that's very orienting for us. Because how many of us know that God, who as we read in the Bible, created everything to orbit around him. He is the center of his creation. Everything takes up its orbit around God. Now, How many of you know that it becomes very tempting for us to have our little lives break out of that orbit around God? And next thing you know, we're, we're orbiting around how much money we have. And wealth becomes our orbit. Or if you're a young person, you're orbiting around whether you've got a boyfriend or not. Or whether he's paying attention to you. And you've spun out of the orbit of God. And for some people, just... Just get in the break and go to Walmart to shop, right? That's just, that's orbit for me today. And we break out of the orbit God's created. See, this, in the beginning, this is orienting man. This is pressing the reset button on man. When you got created, the God who created you had something in mind. And that's where Genesis starts as well. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, the main character with a plan. John 1 verse 3, all things were made through him. All things were made through him. He's the main character. Colossians 1. I think this was the verse that was shared during the worship time. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Listen. All things were created through him and for him, that little phrase, all things were created through him and for him, give us two things. It gives us origins and it gives us purpose. Why are, why are you and I here? Well, all things were created. They originate through him. He designed them and he created them. And for him, in other words, for a purpose. Now, how helpful is this? So a planet of people who are desperately trying to find meaning and purpose in life. 
But life is a whirlwind. People are flying everywhere trying to invent activity and find out who am I supposed to be and what makes me significant. And we get hung up over things. We have fears in our lives. People operate the wrong place in our lives. We're miserable. We need counseling. We take drugs. All this stuff because we're busy trying to figure out what gives me significance. I don't know why you get enslaved to people. Because you're trying to figure out what makes your life significant. And you're trying to get that person right there to tell you that you're significant to them. And then that person. But I'm not significant to them. And I stay up at night and I worry about it. And I'm afraid to get around these people. So get around them. They're going to they're gonna find out that I'm really not all that impressive. And then I won't be significant to them. What are you trying to find out in life? I'm trying to find out why I'm here. And we, we live in this blur of activity. Good representation of this. I received this email this week. From the, some of you will remember the great philosopher from the 60s and 70s named George Carlin. Listen to George. The paradox of our time in history is that we have taller buildings, but shorter tempers. Wider freeways, but narrower viewpoints. We spend more, but have less. We buy more, but enjoy less. We have bigger houses and smaller families. More conveniences, but less time. We have more degrees, but less sense. <laughs> more knowledge, but less judgment. More experts, yet more problems. More medicine, but less wellness. We drink too much, smoke too much, spend too recklessly, laugh too little, drive too fast, get too angry, stay up too late, get up too tired, read too little, watch too, TV too much, and pray too seldom. We have multiplied our possessions, but reduced our values. We talk too much. We talk too much, love too seldom, and hate too often. We've learned how to make a living, but not a life. We've added years to life, not life to years. We've been all the way to the moon and back, but have trouble crossing the street to meet a new neighbor. We conquered outer space, but not inner space. We've cleaned up the air, but polluted the soul. We've conquered the atom, but not our prejudice. We've learned to rush, but not to wait. We build more computers to hold more information to produce more copies than ever. But we communicate less and less. <laughs> These are the times of fast food, fast foods and slow digestion, big men and small character, steep profits and shallow relationships. These are the days of two incomes, but more divorce, fancier houses, but broken homes. It is a time when there is much in the showroom window, showroom window and nothing in the stock room. Now, that, that blur of, of comedic strangeness really does, though, kind of show you the ambitious hustle of life, right? I mean, we are a people that are just busy running and doing and filling up and trying and getting. Well, what are we after in doing all this? We're after a meaningful life. We want to make sure we do whatever it is that that thing's selling purpose and meaning and adventure in our lives. An anonymous person said this, the Greatest days in a person's life are the day he was born and the day he finds out why he was born. I don't know about you. Have you ever been in the place in your life where you really were asking that question? Why am I here? A lot of times you ask it in a, in a season of desperation. It's like everything that was supposed to be working has, has begun to break. And the path that I was on and I thought led to some pot of gold at the end of it. It just came to a dead end, and now I'm having to ask, why am I here? 
And that comes in different seasons of life. But I think everybody here will ask that question to themselves probably multiple times in their lives. For me, the most memorable moment of asking that question was 1978. I was an average teenage kid living in the suburbs, um, decent life, middle class, not a lot of struggles, didn't have everything in the world that I wanted, but I had enough, um, got along well with people, did successfully at school, played sports, did fine in that. But, you know, I was, I was, you know, I started drinking alcohol when I was 12 years old, started smoking marijuana when I was 13, and it was beginning to move down a road that was going to be very interesting for me because the people that I was hanging around, they just happened to be about four or five years older than who I was. I just had an appetite for older people. Um, had a brother who was three years older than me, and he kind of had friends who were two years older than them. So next time, that's who I'm hanging around. So I'm, I'm at, you know, 12 and 13 living the life of the 16 and 17 year old guy. And I can remember, you know, I'm not strung out. I'm not, you know, I don't have needle marks up and down my arm and I'm in the curb somewhere and you pass me on the street. I'm, I'm, I'm just lying to my parents left and right and just pulling off stuff and climbing out windows and doing all the stuff that rebellious teenagers do. And I'm on my way somewhere. But I can remember this. I can remember sitting in my bed, staring at the ceiling. Not because I felt my life was terrible, but because it's like God opened my eyes to see something. I looked at these guys who were four and five years older than me, and they were all doing the same stuff I was doing. They were living for the weekend. They were, they were living for these events. They were planning and plotting how, how we could get high, where we could go, what adventure we could create. And I, I looked at their life and I thought, you know, not, not that I'm having a miserable time, but they're still doing the same thing I'm doing. Am I going to still be doing that when I'm their age? And I thought, you know, there's got to be something more than this in life. See, at some point, you're going to come to a place, whatever age it comes, whatever circumstance it comes, the familiarity and the sameness and the activity and the, the things on a temporary scale of life are going to lead you to a place where you're going to ask that question. There's got to be something more than this. There is. There's great news. In the beginning, God created. God had a design in mind. Let's walk through this design a little bit. It says in verse 4, it says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In Him was life. This God, this orienting life back to God, goes back to Genesis where God created. In Him was life. Life in God is life. Remember, even from the from the, the standpoint of any of us becoming animated and taking on something more than dirt characteristics, God formed man out of the dust of the earth. And I guess you could say, well, look at man standing right there. But man is not alive. Man doesn't have a life until God gives him a life. And God it says God breathed the breath of life and man became a living soul. In that moment, man came alive. Where did that come from? The source of man's life was God. And we find out the providence of God, that God is the one who gives life to everything that's living, and He's the one who keeps it all alive. Acts chapter 17, verse 24 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, 
He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. See, this orienting for man is man is wandering on this journey of life. And John begins with, in the beginning, God gave you what you have. And why is that so important? Well, Acts kind of tweaks out something here. The God who made the world, the one who originated it, being Lord of heaven and earth. Well, that word Lord is a very loaded word in the Bible. It's the word for the boss, landlord, owner. Being the owner, well, why does he get to be the owner? Because he's the one who made it all. He made everything. Even the breath that comes in and out of our body doesn't originate from us. It's been granted to us by God. He's given that to us. If you, if you, I don't have a good illustration for this. Somehow God has franchised life. Right? I mean, you, that says something. When you franchise something, there are certain elements to it that have to remain the same. Because you have the right to use the franchise, but in a way you don't own it. You have the right to use the breath God's given you, but in a way you don't own it. God does. And he has the right to take it back any day he chooses. See, how many people take God to task when someone dies? It's because we've forgotten in the beginning God created. This is his. He has the right to do with it whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. So the breath that you and I have is on loan to us from God. He's allowed us to use it. He's allowed us to live these lives. But it's God's life. You don't go buy a McDonald's franchise and turn around and say, you know what? Yellow never has been my color. Red, white, and blue, and we're serving pizza. But we're going to still call ourselves McDonald's. McDonald's will come jerk that thing right out of your hands. You're done being McDonald's. Well, in a similar way, God ordered life, and he breathed life into man, and man decided he'd do his own thing. That's a problem. Because the Lord of heaven and earth, the boss, the owner of heaven and earth, has the right to tell you and I what to do with our next breath. And you know, good, healthy Americans, we don't like that concept, do we? I mean, you just think, listen to what you're used to hearing in the news as it comes to religion. Religion is those people with their God trying to impose their ideas on us. And you know, that's just wrong. And we should have laws that protect us from that. That's wrong. You know, who do they think they are and who is this God that he's going to come along and butt himself into our business and our life and then tell us we got to live a certain way? No, that's not how it works. In the beginning, God created. So the accurate picture of man would not be that scenario. The accurate picture of man is God created, breathes his life into his own creation that he had every right to do with it, however he wanted to do. And then man turned around and said, butt out, we'll take it from here. And stole and shanghaied God's stuff. That's a more accurate picture of humanity. Because in the beginning, God created. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. An interesting transition here. Life becomes light. Illumination gets pulled into this life category. Light and life are related. In other words, in order to have life, 
One must be able to see and understand something. In the economy of God, life is connected with what we understand and what we know. Well, what is it that we need to know? What do we need to see? John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What, what, what is life? In God's economy... Life is knowing God. That, that is the essence of life as God created it. Life is knowing God. So light comes, when the life comes and light comes with it, it's so that God might be seen. That God has now become knowable. When this life comes to earth, And he brings light. He illumines who God is. Well, that's the very essence of our life. The very essence of why are you here? Is so that you would know God. When I found myself at that point of asking questions about my own life and realizing I didn't have good reasons for for what was I going to pursue in life and should I keep doing this? It It was in that season of my life When the gospel and the truth of God permeated it and it made sense, something in my heart knew, I I need to know God. See, that's what God had in mind in the beginning when he created. Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and 24 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Now, question. What are you ambitious about so that you can have a good life? What is it that you go after hard, you sacrifice to have, you get up early, you stay up late, you spend time, mental energy, you fight through relationship problems, you confront issues, you put yourself in uncomfortable settings. What is it that you are so ambitious about so that you can have a good life? So if we're not careful, it's going to fall into Jeremiah's issues of. Maybe it's wisdom, or I think in our country it's more, not so much that you're wise, but that you're well-educated. You know, you've got to make sure that your child gets in the right kindergarten these days so that they can get into the right grammar school, into the right feeder school for the right high school that can get them into the right college, because, you know, Lord knows that it's your education that's going to take you somewhere. Listen, I'm all for education. That's great. I'm an engineer standing behind a pulpit preaching. You know, education can be weird sometimes. If I ask all of you guys, all you guys who have degrees and things you're not using, yeah, I'm making lots of money over here doing this thing that I never got trained for. That, that's 
you know, education becomes something that we start thinking, if we just get the right education, then I can just have the right life. The Bible says, don't boast in that. That's not the thing to pursue. Well, maybe it's, maybe it's might, influence, power. I want to make sure that I'm a person of influence and power. I want to be respected. I want to be in positions of authority. I want to play roles in people's life. Because see, if I, if I had that, then I, I could have a good life. And then quite simply, wealth, right? You know, riches. Don't boast in riches. Oh, how many of us have just so much wanting to have more money? If we could just have more money, couldn't our life just be better? We just have more money. You know, it doesn't have to be a lot of more money. Just, you know, a decent amount more. And my life could be better. Or maybe you've got big, big dreams that are all attached to money and you need a lot more money. And what about this? Let the one who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. The most significant thing. How many of us are ambitious for that? I mean, look, really, you know, we're, we're promoting stuff here. Why? We're memorizing scripture. Well, four or five were. Um, why are we doing that? Now, now listen, just the, the memorization of scripture, the study of scripture, the amount of time being spent in the scripture would give away whether you and I are ambitious in this category. And if we're not ambitious in this category, it's because we're after life. Oh, we want to live, but we don't want this life. And this is life, that they understand and know the, the one true God. That's life. Listen, this is the air we breathe of life, the knowledge of God. Our life runs on the knowledge of God. When God seeks to give us life, he does so by giving a revelation of himself. You look all throughout Scripture. The way in which God intends to bless man and, and to bring goodness into his life is that God pulls back the veil and shows himself to man. It's like there's something about that. There's something in that exchange. There's this mysterious coming into us. It's, it's the air we're breathing and we're designed to breathe. This quote from Rabbi Zacharias, he says, The scriptures are profuse. In describing for us God's person, his character, and how he has chosen to reveal himself. In mining the wealth of that content, we come to understand how profoundly he has responded to the cry of the human heart. Who are you, God? This ought to be the paramount quest of every man, woman, and child. Because from that knowledge flows every other answer to the cries of the heart and mind. Listen, do I have good grounds to stand here and say this? Yes, because in the beginning, God made everything. He is the one who designed it all. He knows that our engine of life is designed to run on gasoline. Pour Coca-Cola in all you want because it tastes good, but the, the pistons won't fire and you won't have a life. God designed us a certain way. To run on who he is. How often are we spending our time making everything else so critical and so important? Whether you're a young person in school. Oh, never have time for the Bible. Never have time to study the word of God. Don't have time for that. I've got tests. I've got term papers. I've got to keep an A average. Why? So I can get in the right school and get educated just right so I can have a good life. You follow me? This is what's in us. This is contrary to the word of God. A good life's not going to come because I got straight A's and got in the right school. Let the, let the man who boasts, boasts in this city, understands and knows me. Does that mean you ought to be an idiot in all other categories? No. 
Solomon wasn't an idiot. Daniel wasn't an idiot. Joseph wasn't an idiot. People who knew God in the Bible had a severe impact on the culture in which they lived. But do you understand how we can misplace this very subtle, powerful truth? The God who designed us, designed us to breathe in the knowledge of who He is. In the beginning, God made it this way. He designed us. Well, now we're introduced as well. Next section in this prologue, we're introduced to the mission of Christ. Which is related to this creative dynamic of God. There's a mission. Jesus is on a mission. He is, he is restoring things to the, to the crea- created order and intention of the God who was in the beginning making man. And we, we find this mission described, the, the theological term is the incarnation of Christ. We find it in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. The light comes into the darkness. It's going to get inside that darkness. Verse 9. The true light was coming into the world. Into the world. Now, I don't have time to unpack all these thoughts, but I do want you to just notice when you read the Bible, words like the true light. That's almost like you can walk by it and get your clothing hung up on it. Ooh, oh, that, that nicked my Islam pants. Right, little statements like that cast a shadow on belief systems. Right? I mean, just stick with me here. Let's use all of our minds for a moment. True light means that there is... Yeah, see, that was easy to do, wasn't it? When you read the Bible, Bible's all over the place, like setting these little explosive devices all over the place. You know, don't, don't try and make the Bible... And this is what modern man... Don't try and make the Bible kind. The Bible is not kind. It's not an equal opportunity kind of a thing. It's like all the religions... No, I mean, they're just little incendiary devices being placed everywhere. And like when you're done reading the Bible, it's like... All these religions are blowing up everywhere and people's belief systems are coming down because there's true light and there's false light. Remember, because there's darkness in the world. Deceptive darkness is in the world. Verse 14, this mission is described as the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So into darkness, into human flesh, into human life comes God on a mission. What was this about? Look in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Why this incarnation? Why this life that is light coming into darkness? Why? So God can be seen. So the air we breathe can be full of the knowledge of God. He is bringing a revelation of God Himself, Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. That's a strange statement if you stay there long enough. Wait, he's, he's invisible. How, how can he be the image of the invisible God? He is the image that makes known that which is invisible. You can't see. Now, again, this, you're going to get snagged on this statement right there. Who is the image of the invisible God? Jesus Christ. Now, what happens if you start playing with the definition of who Jesus Christ is? Well, well, he's an angel. Well, everybody knows he's a great guy. He had a lot of great intentions. But, you know, to call him God himself, I don't know. Well, if you change who he is, he's going to have a problem because he is the image of the invisible God. Second Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light 
and Matt did an excellent job, prophetic job of picking songs today. Uh, these songs, were, we, we, we sang all these verses in these songs. Let light shine out of darkness. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know, why, why is this so critical? Jesus, in the face of Jesus Christ, one gets the knowledge of the glory of God. When you gaze upon Christ, you gaze at the knowledge of the glory of God. He sent his son for that purpose. First John 5.20. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding. Right. The life was the light of men in your light. We see light. We know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. What a statement of the deity of Christ. He is this true God. And he is the image. Remember his disciples would ask him, Jesus, show us the Father. You know, I'm not sure what response exactly sounded like. And I don't know if it was, hello, hello. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the image of God. That's the mission he's on, is to reveal God, John 1.14 says it this way. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. And that word glory, that's a good vocabulary word. Sadly, I, I lived a good bit of my Christian life just thinking glory was what you shouted at the end of certain songs. I can learn that from Peter. At the end of the song, he would shout. Glory! It's like it, it wasn't really part of the song, but everybody in the church knew that was coming. If he didn't do it, right? Bill, you remember that song? <clears throat> if he didn't do it, it was kind of like, is he okay? <clears throat> he passed out. God judged him. What happened there? But glory was just something you said. You know, you, if you, you, you sat there and you fanned yourself and said, glory. Glory! I, I don't know what it was. It was an exclamation. <clears throat> but I didn't know what it was. And unfortunately, words like that are what people walk away from church and they kind of go. Now, that's what I don't get about the whole church thing. It's not relevant to real life. You know, glory. OK, how does that help me on my job? How does it help me when I'm sick? How does it help me work through friendships? How does, how does that help me be happy? OK, I want to be happy in life. And you guys are running around shouting glory. How does that help me? Let's see. The church isn't relevant. Can I tell you this? In the beginning, God made his glory the most relevant thing for the human life that would ever exist. And if that doesn't touch our life in real ways, then there is no way, there is no way you and I can be experiencing the life we were intended to experience. There's no way. See, this glory becomes a central issue, one, because God's intention is about his glory. When you read the Bible, you find verses all over the place like this. Habakkuk 2, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God intends to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. Isaiah 43, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. See, why are you? Why are you? You are for the glory of God. That's why you are. 
The one who originated life. The one who had the design blueprints and created us with the abilities that we have to think and run and imagine and do and worship. He created us for the glory of God. All things were made through him and for him. See, this, this is where, you know, life is a battle between the worship of God and the serving of idols. That's what life is. From the moment we draw breath, life is a battle of who will we glorify. That's why life is so hard. What keeps pulling at you, what keeps the tension there, is that there is a God who owns the franchise, who says, I lent you breath so you would bring glory to who I am. And everything else pulls on us away from that. And that's why we live in the tensions that we do. But if you don't get this, you know, why do you live your life? Why are you a mother? Well, I just always wanted to have children since I was little. I played with Barbies and I just wanted to always have children. Okay. All right. Glad you want to have children. It's great. You know, why are you a husband? No, I don't want to go there. Um, <clears throat> all these things. Look at what First Peter says. Verse 4. Chapter 4. Whoever speaks... As one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory. See, why why has God given you the salary that you have? Why do you have the mental abilities that you have to, to have the job that you have? Why do you have the physical skills that you have in your hands to do things? Why are you married? Why do you have children? All these things are for the glory of God. See, they are, they are franchised out to us to be used a certain way. You don't get to change the colors and serve a different product. The owner of heaven and earth has loaned them to us for a reason. Now, second reason why glory is so important. <clears throat> Man's design and hunger... Is about God's glory. See, in the beginning, God created you and he put in you a hunger, a desire. And you will chase your tail and you will run to the ends of the earth. If you don't quickly figure out what I'm hungry for is for God to be glorified. It's in me. And if I resist, I will run after sin. I'll run after my own glory. But I will never satisfy the longings for which I've been created. <clears throat> do you remember this? I can do this quickly. Remember Moses and his life? Moses has a very defining moment in Exodus chapter 34. If you want to look there with me. Moses has lived quite a life. What a life, right? How many of us can say, well, I started off in a basket, floated down a river. I mean, he's been incredibly rescued. He goes into some foreign setting and he becomes some big muckety-muck. He's been trained. He has all kinds of special talents. He's in the wealthiest country in the world. They're taking over the rest of the world. And then all of a sudden, this big shift comes in and he goes and he goes to be with another people and he gets raised up to be this great rescuer, this great, you know, put it in, in the natural setting, this great political force. He's going to go, he's, he's Nelson Mandela. He's going to go and he's going to set his people free and he's going to proclaim a message. And then they're all going to follow him out. This guy's going to turn around one day and there's a few million people following him across the desert. 
Now, if you were trying to climb the ladder of success, I'm pretty sure you've arrived. I don't know anybody else who can walk across a desert and have three million people saying, hey, man, we're with him. Go on. Wherever you go, we're with you, baby. I don't, I don't see McDonald's, but I'm, I'm with you. This guy has succeeded. He's lived an incredibly adventurous life. But he's going to get to a point with God where he turns around and he asks God the one nagging question that is always inside of him. God, show me your glory. See, the one thing in the human heart that wants to see something, it is we want to see the glory of God. You remember the story? God says, Moses, I don't think you know what you're asking for, buddy. You can't look on me and continue to exist. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to put you in a rock. I'm going to put you in this place where a really limited view of the crevice of a rock. And I'm going to, I'm going to come flying by and put one hand over your face. And right as my presence goes away, I'm going to lift my hand just for a second. And you're going to get a glimpse of the back of me as it goes away. It's about all you can stand. And then this glory gets described. It's in verse chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. This is here. Show me your glory. The Lord. The Lord. A God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love. It's the Hebrew word hased. And faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers. On the children and the children's children. To the third and the fourth generation. And the presence passes. Moses falls to the ground. He worships God. He he has taken in what his soul has longed for. He can only be taken in in a very glimpse of what God is. See, the human soul is crying out for a revelation of the glory of God. It's what we're made for. Why, Why is John highlighting this issue? In the beginning, God made and then he sent his son because man has departed from the glory of God. And the son has come to reveal once again the glory of God to humanity so that we can respond. What is the glory of God? Well, you just got to partial definition. I don't think that's a complete definition. Because I think Jeremiah actually lends a little bit to the glory of God. Let, let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices, listen, a very similar list, steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. The word glory in the Old Testament is the word chabad. And it really lacks a good word in the English language. I would use this just from an engineering background. It's the word that you probably learn in chemistry for density. Right? When, you, when you, take a, you, know, you fill up a gallon of water, put it next to a gallon of air, put it next to a gallon of lead. Right? What makes those things different is the density, what makes up the contents of that material. Well, this is sort of the content of God. He is loving kindness. He is mercy. 
He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. He is forgiving. He is righteous and he is just. Therefore, he does not allow the guilty to go unpunished. See, this is the glory of God on display. This is the glory that's about to be seen in human form. The word became flesh. If you will, those words are now walking around in a body. Why is Jesus here? And we beheld his glory. See, when Moses saw the glory of God, well, that's what you're going to see in Jesus, aren't you? He's going to put on the glory of God and he's going to walk around and you're going to see compassion and what it looks like. He's going to go to the cross and you're going to see justice, aren't you, in what it looks like. And you're going to see righteousness in what it looks like. And you're going to see him on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. And you're going to see forgiveness in what it looks like. He is the image of the glory of God. This is what we have in the beginning of this book of John. That we're going to see all the rest of the way. This book is about beholding the glory of God in the face, in the person of Jesus Christ. What an incredible communication from God. And what an amazing thing God has done in sending his son on this mission. Listen, this is, this is what the human heart longs for, whether you realize it or not. I don't have time to unpack Psalm 63, but you can go back and, and read it. I just want to let you see that this hunger for glory is all over the place. Psalm 63, David says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I have looked upon you. See, we want to see the glory of God. I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love, your said, same word that God used to Moses, is better than life. See, this is the light that the life came to show us. The revelation of the glory of God. Now, one last scripture here. How does God show us this? Hebrews chapter 1. Turn there real quickly. This incarnation. This light coming into darkness. You're going to get snagged on this verse. Humanity should be snagged reading this verse. This, this is... Why we are reading about the worst crime in human history. Long ago, verse 1, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is He, Jesus Christ, walking in sandals from from Nazareth. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. That statement makes Islam and Mormonism And Jehovah Witnesses, scandalous. Do you understand? If he is the exact 
radiance of the glory of God, then you don't have permission to tamper with Him. If God won't let you use His name in vain, do you think He'll let you change who He is? Oh, there's no kindness here in the Bible when your Jehovah Witness person shows up your door and says, Oh, no, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was a God. No! No, He was not a God. You have just changed who He is. He's no longer the radiance of the one true God. This is a scandal. To stand and say the God of Islam who denies Jesus Christ being God is God. This is a scandal. See, Christianity has this, these real jagged edges on it that you either have to embrace it or reject it. It can't get along with anything else for these reasons. It's either true, and we put our hope in it, we're saved. Or it's completely wrong, and it must be rejected. But you cannot have Islam and Mormonism and Christianity all sitting at the same table saying, hey, we're all here trying to do the same thing. You can't have it. The Bible doesn't let it happen. You can't tamper with the person of Jesus Christ. He is the exact radiance of the glory of God. And we have beheld him. And the reason why he came, John 1 verse 18, was so that the invisible God could be seen. He could be made visible. And Jesus Christ does that. Last thing we're introduced in this section is to the greatest crime in human history. John 1, verse 10. He was in the world. The world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. His own people rejected him. And this is going to get unpacked all throughout you're going to feel the rumblings of this rejection all throughout the Gospel of John. As Jesus encounters religious leaders and people who were supposed to be the nation of Israel, who had a revelation of God, who should have been welcoming him, throwing out the red carpet, bowing at his feet, throwing the greatest ex- excited party they've ever had in their life. The Messiah has come. Oh, we honor him. We welcome him. They rejected him. All the way to a cross. Where they, you know, you remember, they forced the Romans who didn't want to kill him to kill him. See, this is, what's, this is what's in the heart of man. Let me just raise this question for us. Why? Why does man reject the glory of God revealed in Christ? John 3, verse 19. This is a judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. See, why does man commit this crime? Because man loves something else more than he loves the glory of God. Man doesn't always love the glory of God, does he? You and I don't always love the glory of God, do we? Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God. Revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived and cannot be any more clearly perceived than in looking to the face 
of Jesus Christ. Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And today, causes and entrepreneurial pursuits and philanthropy and religion and whatever else we're exchanging the glory of God for. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Where does, where does this activity come from? It comes the day that man decides, I will exchange the glory of God for a different glory. I love a different glory. I want something else. Well, this is what happens. Why do these things happen? Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Why? Why do we reject the glory of God? Because we love something else. It's glorious when God takes a sinner, self-oriented, and moves him away from sin into righteousness. When he moves a sinner away from impurity into purity. Oh, but we love the pleasure of impurity. When he moves us into the glory of Holy Spirit-given self-control. Oh, but you know, I, I just like to indulge. when he moves on a selfish sinner's heart to live ambitiously and lay down life and die for the glory of God. But, you know, I love the glory of ease and comfort. I mean, I was, I was designed for a lazy boy. You can see it in my shape. <clears throat> we, love, we love the glory of anger more than we love the glory of forgiveness and mercy. We love being right. We love pride. We love the way it makes us feel when we win an argument and we're right. Somebody's got to cry uncle and say, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. We just wanted to be right because of pride. Because we love our own pride more than we love the glory of God. So why do we do these things? See, you have to put a real ugly face on this. This is why this gospel begins where it does. This is why all the gospels begin with the word repentance. Man needs to hear the word repentance because we are postured to reject. He came to his own. and His own did not receive him. He came with the message. I didn't come to judge everybody and condemn everybody. I came that you'd have life. Reject him anyway. See, we're postured naturally to reject this work of God. So if you're going to come to Christ, the first thing that's got to happen, it's got to continue to happen, is I'm going to need to repent to embrace him. Matt, go ahead and come up. There is some really good news here. John chapter 1, verse 12, just part of your memory verse for the week. This is a very critical verse that you should have memorized. Verse 11, he came to his own. His own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, and some will, who believed in his name, believing and receiving are synonymous actions. Believing is not mere mental acknowledgement. Sure, yeah, I believe there was a guy named Jesus. He walked around, wore sandals. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. That's not receiving. Receiving and believing go together. 
To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's what we talked about. Do you have a good definition for what a child of God is? Well, you can't have this definition. Well, everybody's a child of God. You can't have that one. The Bible doesn't let you have that one. If everybody's a child of God, then no one becomes a child of God. They just are children of God. But in this passage, we're introduced to what is in the Bible all over the place, the biblical mechanisms of becoming a child of God. One becomes a child of God, and actually one comes out of being a child of the devil, which we'll learn in John as well. And one becomes a child of God by believing by putting faith and trust and receiving the very life of God into his own life. Receiving the claims of Christ. Receiving the fact that he's standing here today telling you, listen, in the beginning, I made you. I made man. I gave man breath. I allowed him to breathe so that the greatest task of his life would be to bring glory to who I am. I allowed him to have all kinds of variety in his life colors and people and relationships and things and talents so that every one of those things would give the pleasure of bringing glory to who I am. Now, if you're here today and Jesus isn't the reason for your life, bringing glory to him is not why you go to work. It's not why you are married. It's not why you have children. It's not why you pursue the things that you pursue then what you have done is you have shanghaied God's stuff. You're living with stolen goods. You've stolen the breath you have. You've stolen the body you have. You've stolen the thoughts. You've stolen them from God. In the beginning, God made them. He has the right for all of them. Now listen, it's the grace of God that you're here today and God hasn't said, I want the breath back now. You do understand this, right? Can I put it on a real stupid level? When you open your refrigerator, does the food volunteer to be eaten? No. You're the Lord of the refrigerator, aren't you? Everybody here the Lord of the refrigerator? Hallelujah. Be Lord of something. (laughs) Open the door up and you choose. Pumpkin pie. Today is your last day, right? (laughs) That's your call to make, okay, because you own it. If you're, the, if you're the person in the house who cooks, you cooked it. You have the right to eat it. In the beginning, God. Everything that was made was made by him and for him. He has the right. It's not cruel. He has the right at some point to say, I take that breath back. And your life comes to an end in the sense But what he wants you to do with that breath is to give him glory with your life. Surrender your life to him. Say, Lord, every day of my life was made for you and was made for your glory. If you're here this morning and and you've never done that, you've never had that exchange with God where you said, God, not only do I just acknowledge that you exist, but I acknowledge that you are the owner. And you have all the rights over my life. And you sent your son with all this beauty and his compassion. And I, I learned about forgiveness and my sins are forgiven. You come with love and you come with care and you come punishing your son instead of punishing me. Oh, God, I want my life to bring honor to your name. Your name's worthy. If you're here this morning and that's what you'd like to do, you need to tell the Lord you want to do that. You need to believe and receive this morning so you can become a child of God. 
In your heart right now, turn to God and say, God, what he just said, that's what I want. I say yes to you this morning. I want you to have my life. I want to be your child. Let's stand up together. Lord, I I trust that we have opened this time for your Holy Spirit to unfold your word to us and to let it bring light and impart understanding. Lord, to reorient who we are back to the God who gave us life from the beginning and sent his son to show the very air that we're to breathe, the life we're to take in is your life lived for your glory. God, I pray for any person who's here this morning who's never come to that point of full surrender that that's the agenda of their life. That's the reason why they're going to be allowed to breathe one more breath here today and then more tomorrow was so that everything in their life could point to Jesus Christ and His glory revealed. Oh God, would you satisfy hearts that are here this morning that haven't figured out why is it I feel so empty? Why? What what is there about life? What am I doing here? Is there anything more here? God, I pray that you would come into those questions right now and you would open hearts to you and they would realize they were designed for you. They were created for you. God, come satisfy the hearts that are longing for answers here this morning. I believe there's some here, and I just want you to to bow your heads for a moment with me. I believe there's some here who would say, no, I I, I remember doing that. I do remember a time and a place where I surrendered that way to God and I embraced Him. But you find yourself today in a place where you have exchanged the glory of God for something else. Perhaps that pleasure you're getting is... Some temporary sin, some sexual sin, the sin of laziness rather than the glory of ambitiously living for God to be seen in your life. Whether it's indulging, indulging in visual things, indulging in overeating, finding pleasure in that rather than finding pleasure in the glory of God. Maybe you're here today and you're angry. The only reason why you're not really in touch with your anger is because the people you're angry with are not here with you. But if they were here and you were to glance on them, your mind would race and it would fill quickly with thoughts of why you are angry and what an injustice has been done. If you are in touch with that anger, you have exchanged the glory of anger to take the place the glory of forgiveness the glory of the mercy of God, the glory of the compassion of God that can transfer from your heart into that person's life. And you can decide to do that. I want to call out this morning. I want to ask for God to meet folks here who you are aware. You've exchanged the glory of God in your life for something else. I want this morning for you to meet with God. I want you to, I want you to come forward. I want you to come and confess that to God. It is... It is scandalous the God who sent his son to reveal the worth of the glory of God should capture our hearts 
I should be able to gaze upon him with a, with a response that says, God, I want you and nothing else. I want you. But if your appetite for God has diminished and you have found yourself exchanging what is glorious about God for the glory of some other pleasure, I want you to come up this morning. I want you to start with repentance. I want you to realize I have rejected him who's come to me. He came to his own and his own didn't receive him. Oh, let it not be said of the church that he comes to his own church today to move and to care and to reveal himself and his own people still won't receive him because they love the pleasures of sin more than the glory of God. I'll let God make this real to you. Listen, this is This is God's Word dealing in your heart. If you're sensing your heart right now, you're wondering whether I'm about to call your name, it's because the Holy Spirit's grabbing you. Don't waste that moment. Don't treat lightly the grace of God that comes with conviction. When He says, listen, I'm coming to you right now. Don't reject the Son of God when He comes. He's coming this morning. He wants to reorient your life. What a gracious gift of God for God to say, listen, you're living for the wrong things. When I created you, can you listen to me for a moment? When I created you, I had something in mind. Will you just just learn it and appreciate it and embrace it? It will bless your life. It will fill you with joy. It will be your pleasure. Would you put down that other thing? Oh, what graciousness for God. This morning to reorient our lives. Anybody else here this morning? I want Matt to close us in a song, but I, w- I would like for folks that are here, I would like for you to, to believe the biblical truths about prayer and about praying for others, caring for one another and their burdens, believing that there is power. You lay your hands upon people. And the power of God comes with you to touch these lives and to break strongholds and to bring fresh envisioning and faith and new delight in God. I I want some of the people of God to come up here and pray and believe a supernatural God lives inside of you. He wants to unleash power that will make a difference in these lives that will refresh and renew and replenish and reorient. So I want folks to come pray as Matt leads us in this song.